All right, we're going to open up the Word tonight to Ephesians chapter 3. Last week, we spoke briefly about Paul's impossible wish um, and considered the all-encompassing, just that all-surpassing love that had gripped his heart. This evening, um, I want to come at it again from a perspective of one of Paul's prayers. So, And this is one of those passages of Scripture that is... It's so large that it's hard to really come down. (laughs) So it's going to be a a glance at the surface and hopefully we'll benefit from it. Uh, Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 21. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What exactly is Paul seeking in this prayer? There are four petitions or requests, each that build on the next as we read through it. First, that they would be strengthened in verse 16. Next, that Christ would dwell in their hearts, verse 17. The next, that they would be able to comprehend in verse 18, and lastly, that they would be filled in verse 19. If you look at the flow of it, I think you will see that each phrase in this long sentence builds upon the prior thought to bring us finally up to the request that he is ultimately after, and that is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's look at the first petition. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. We need this strength. Paul is asking for it to be a mighty strengthening in the inner man. A strengthening at the very core of who we are, at our inmost being, the inner man. And we have to ask ourselves, is this not where we find ourselves most needy? We are the most weak in the inner man. We have fallen. We have we have a, a heart that is, is wicked, that wants to do things contrary. And it is there that we need strengthening. We have a warfare in our members, and we, like Paul, find ourselves with that question, that, or that cry that he cried, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? We cry with the man I believe, Help thou my unbelief. And for a better understanding of what Paul means by this, I want to look back for a moment at the opening prayer of the book of Ephesians. Uh, which I believe is really simply the beginning of this prayer. If you look carefully, you'll see that Paul starts into this prayer and then digresses in chapter 2 to explain what he means by the mystery in the church and his part in proclaiming that mystery and then picks back up this prayer in chapter 3. And I really think our text is just a continuation of that prayer uh, from the first chapter. So let's look at that, and and I think we'll see a little bit better what he means by this strengthening uh, with might. 
verse 17 of chapter 1 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the beginning of his prayer, the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So we see here that what he is asking for is nothing short of miraculous power. He is asking that the Spirit of God would strengthen us at the core of our being with the same mighty power that raised our Lord from the dead. He is not asking that he would save us. The prayer is one of thanksgiving and praise for them because they were already believing. He is asking for them to be strengthened and that it would be done in mighty power. And that leaves the question, why? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He is asking for resurrection power to enable us to believe, to trust, to live with Christ. That Christ may dwell Make his home in our inner man. That Christ would be our all. With the result that ye being rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. There have been many explanations of what these words, breadth, length, depth, and height, might mean. But I think it's really simply a reference to the completeness of this love. The dimensions of this love, if you will. We could talk of the breadth as the wideness of this love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is in every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every tongue, there is in Revelation that innumerable company that will join in the throng that praise the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That love is broad. Mm -hmm. There is a breadth to that love. We could speak of the length to which this love has gone. There is no place where this love cannot reach. There is no time when this love did not exist. It will reach out into eternity, both past and future. It will not fail. It cannot be thwarted. The length of this love. We could speak of the depth of this love and peer into the garden and see our Savior. There in the bloody sweat and praying with strong crying and tears. We could sit at the foot of the cross in those three awful hours of darkness and just wonder. We could listen to the cry of our anguished Savior, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. We can turn our gaze from the suffering one to those he suffered for and look at Manasseh and see those streets that were filled with blood. We could look at Paul himself persecuting intensely, furiously. We could even look at a modern day man, a Jeffrey Dahmer, notorious for being such an evil, evil man, plunging to such depths of depravity. And we could see them all clothed and in their right mind. Why? Because this love reached them even in the depths of their depravity. It is as deep 
as hell. He could speak, we could speak of the height of this love. It not only stoops to the dunghill, it lifts to the throne. It is a heavenly love, an infinite love. It knows no bounds. And here I really wish we could plumb the depths of this, don't you? That we could just sit here all night and talk about just this. Just this one verse, but that's not what I want to talk about. Calvin in his commentary on Ephesians encourages us to this, this contemplation. He says, the love of Christ is held out to us as the subject which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations and in which we ought to be wholly plunged. He who is in possession of this alone has enough. Beyond it, there is nothing solid, nothing useful, nothing, in short, that is proper or sound. So Paul is asking that the completeness of this love would not only be in them as the result of the indwelling of Christ and his communion with the soul, but that it would be the outflowing of that communion. And that the soul in the innermost man would be rooted in it and grounded in it. That it would be the foundation of the life. As if that was not enough, he goes even further with the request that we would know the love of God that passes knowledge. He is asking for us to know the unknowable. He is asking that we would know the love that surpasses our heart's ability to contain it. To know the love that we spoke of last week, that impossible love that vaulted so high as to be able to say, I could wish myself accursed if it meant that my kinsmen would be saved. That love that was so like Christ's love that it echoed the determination that took him to the cross. We stand at the ocean with a symbol. We gaze up at this Everest of love. And Paul says, my prayer for you, my prayer for you, is that you would know this unknowable love. Spurgeon, in a sermon on this text, traces the knowing of this love from the most basic and lowly, knowing of it, to the heights to which we saw Paul stretched. He compares it to Jacob's ladder, where there are, at the bottom rung, And some are a little higher, and various others have climbed to the heights. He says, the lowest being the mere doctrinal knowing of the love of Christ. I have told you nothing tonight that you don't know. And you all know that the love of Christ is boundless. You all know that it is free. That there is an immensity to it that defies logic. But if that is all the farther we get, the simple knowing of it, the knowledge of it, to be able to paint it and say, this is what it looks like... How miserable is that knowledge? The next rung on the ladder that Spurgeon talked about was that of knowing this love thankfully and gratefully. And I hope all of us have reached this height. When seeing the love that he has shown us in redemption, we return to him in thanksgiving and in praise. When seeing the love that he shows us each day and each moment, we lift up our hearts in gratitude and thankfulness for the unfailing loving kindness that he shows to us each day. The next on his ladder was practical love, that experience of the love of Christ that makes you like him in service and in the desire to see the lost brought in. Have we reached this? Do we work to see the lost brought in? Can we serve our brothers and sisters without thought of ourselves? Do we complain in our hearts that others are not helping or doing their part? Martha, though she may have come close, had not yet reached this rung. She was serving but it was burdensome. 
and her eyes were not on the love of Christ for her, but on her sister and what she was not doing. But her sister had climbed higher. She was at the feet of the Savior. She had climbed to the next rung on Spurgeon's ladder of experience, and that was... And it was that of contemplation, being taken up with the person of Christ, meditating on his loveliness and beauty, being taken up and carried away by this love. Isaac Ambrose was a Puritan pastor that spent one month out of every year alone in a hut in the woods. And he did it so that he could contemplate the person of Christ. That was his goal, to get alone and to just think on Christ. To meditate on Christ. Spurgeon had this to say about him. He said it was true. He then only had 11 months in the year to preach. But those 11 were a great deal better than the 12 he would have otherwise have had. For there, alone with his master, he received such riches from him that when he came back, he threw about jewels with both hands and scattered the glorious thoughts and the words that he had gotten in his ministry. He went on also to tell the story of the Puritan John Flavel. And I had never seen this before. This was amazing to me. He says, in the life of Mr. Flavel, who was one of the most temperate of the Puritans, and one not at all given to anything like fanaticism, there is an event mentioned which once occurred to him. He said that being once on a journey, alone on horseback, the thought of the love of Christ came upon him with great power. And as he rode gently along the road, the thought seemed to increase in force and in strength, till at last he forgot all about earth and even where he was. Somehow or other, his horse stood still, but he did not notice it. And when he came to himself, through some passerby observing him, he found that he had bled very copiously during the time. I don't know if he hit his head on a tree branch or what, but he was bleeding. Getting off his horse, he washed his face in the brook, and he said, I did verily think, as I stood there, that if I was not in heaven, I could hardly hope to be more blessed in heaven than I was then. He mounted his horse and rode on to a place of lodging where he was to pass the night. Supper was brought in, but left untasted on the table. He sat all night long without sleep, enjoying the presence of Christ. And he says, I was more rested that night than with any sleep I ever had. And I heard and saw in my soul by faith such things as I had never known before. Jonathan Edwards also recounts such a flooding of the love of God into his soul. He says, once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737. Having alighted from my horse, I retired in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as a mediator between God and man, and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express. I felt an ardency of soul to be emptied and annihilated 
to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with the divine and the heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. And Edward Donnelly mentions one of these in a sermon. And he says this. He says, on one occasion, Jonathan Edwards asked God to go away. He said, God, I can't take it anymore. The sense of the presence of God was so absolutely overwhelming that he felt that his very human frame couldn't stand it any longer. Is it any wonder Paul began by asking for strength to be able to receive this? Do we know this love? Have we experienced his love in such a great measure that we need the almighty strength of God to sustain us in it? That's what Paul is asking for. Spurgeon's letter had a higher rung yet, and we cannot disagree that it would be that of sympathetic love like we spoke of last week. That love that loves like Christ loves, completely forgetting self in the pursuit of others in love for them. Well, let's get back to our text. He is praying for the Ephesian believers that they would know this love. Why? Because in knowing it, they would be filled with all the fullness of God. The Bible tells us that God is love. My brethren, do we get that? He is holy. He is just. In all his dealings, he is righteous. But the apostle didn't say he is loving. He said he is love. To be filled with his fullness is to be filled with this love. The fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, if your hearts are not welling up, check your pulse. (laughs) What we just read. I mean, think of that. Think of that. The glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see him as he is and we will be like him because we will see him as he really is. It's too much for us. In fact, it might be kind of discouraging when we stop and step back and look at this. We we realize how little of this we have. How little of this we've experienced. How can we attain this? How can we, with our little thimbles, ever experience these heights, these depths, these breadth, this this length? How can we know this love? We will never fully comprehend it. But that is the beauty of it. We will always be stretching, stretching to take more Always new vistas will be opening up before us. We will always be diving deeper into this love. It will always be pouring over us. Flowing through us. Surrounding us. And I know you're probably thinking I'm talking about heaven. But I'm not. I'm not. Look at how Paul ends this prayer. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. He is able to do exceedingly or exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Literally, the Greek could be translated over beyond over or over, over, over. He's saying he is able to do over all that we ask. 
over all that we could ask. He's saying he is able to do over and beyond all that we could ask. He is able to do over and beyond and over again all that we could ask. He is able to do over and above and over again all that we ask, or get this, or can even think to ask. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above by or according to the mighty power, that dunamis, that dynamite, that power, that resurrection power that is at work within us. And he will do it, not just in heaven, but throughout all. And that will include this one as well. All ages, world without end. Amen. So my brethren, as we come to prayer, do you want to know how to pray for me? (laughs) Do you want to know how to pray for the church? Do you want to know how to pray for pastor, for your wife, for your husband, for your children? Pray like Paul prayed. And expect the fullness of God. Amen.